I believe with what, with what little information we have about him in both biblical and secular history, we can make a few observations about Governor Pilate, and chief of which is he was indeed a politician. Um, I'm not here to stand on political platform, so don't be concerned. Uh, simply pointing out the nature of politics, and that is an individual chooses gallantry or, or, or cowardice based on who the constituency is. And in this particular case, these Jewish individuals who were upset with Jesus were uh, held significant sway over this individual who was supposed to be controlling a somewhat tumultuous situation. Given that he was somewhat of a politician, I believe the guy wasn't, wasn't necessarily stupid either. Because he asked some timely questions that Frankly, not enough people ask today. Uh, we can narrow it down to Matthew, the 27th chapter, and verse 22. But prior to this particular question, he asked Jesus, Are you king of the Jews? He said in verse 13, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Jumping gospels a little bit in Mark, the 15th chapter, he says, Do you answer nothing to these people? And then later on in John the 8th chapter, he, or John the 18th chapter, he asked, what accusations do you bring against this man? And finally, perhaps the most timely question, he said, what is truth? And the list could go on here and there. The point is, Pilate was not an ignorant person, although his actions may have, may have reflected one who was. And Whenever God designs the gospel plan of salvation, whenever He or whenever the Holy Spirit imparts the Bible upon the world, generally speaking, generally speaking, I believe God understands that He's not dealing with ignorant people. That's a strange thing to say, given a lot of what we witness and see in in the media, uh, 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 social media, news, and so on, but. We don't have the excuse of being ignorant people whenever it comes to the gospel of Christ. And in Matthew, the 27th chapter, when Pilate said, What then shall I do with this Jesus who is called Christ? It was, it was a question in response to the demands of individuals who didn't understand a good thing when they saw it or chose not to understand a good thing than they, uh, that they saw it. And the problem has never been knowing who Christ is so much as knowing what to do with the knowledge once you know. Jesus has been immortalized in both secular history and religion texts for hundreds, thousands of years. We might ask thousands of different people if they've heard of Jesus, and most of them will say yes. You'll get a very few uh, enlightened people who will be like, well, what does it mean to know? Ignore them. The vast majority of people will say, yes, I know who Jesus is, or I've at least heard of Jesus. As that same number who know who Jesus is, that very same group will likely receive as many different answers as well. I know, I know, I've heard of Jesus, and I know who He is. There's thousands of different versions of Jesus. And the world might know who Jesus is, but it's a vastly different dilemma to truly know Him, or better yet, what to do with Him after you know. We have a few different options whenever it comes to this question. What will you do with this man called Jesus? And the vast majority of the world will follow the example of those that we see in Matthew, the 27th chapter. The Pharisees were critics of God. They didn't think they were. 
but they were. The Pharisees are a wonderful representation of the world at large. Have you ever had that person that you're studying with, maybe even debating with? It's rarely an actual study. But this person asks you questions about your religion, about your love of God. And they're not asking to know... They don't care the actual answers or the reason for the hope that is in you. They're asking you as a form of discrediting you, as a form of discrediting the Bible, as a form of pointing out the indiscrepancies or the contradictions as they see them. And this is by no means a new practice. The intention is mockery. The intention is to get you in a place where you can't respond. And I believe we've all been there before and it's embarrassing but it's far more embarrassing for an individual who sees and witnesses and understands the Word of God and simply doesn't care. In Matthew 21 and verse 23, this group of people, the Pharisees, the Bible says, When he came to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. Essentially, they interrupted a sermon to ask this question, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? I remember in college, I went to, I went to school at the University of Cincinnati. Not from Ohio, folks. I did live there and I went to school there, but let's make that clear. Wasn't born there. But I went to school there, and there was a guy who had come. His name, he called himself Brother Mike. And Brother Mike would come to the campus. This was before civil disobedience and radical college spirit was a cool thing. It's cool now. Back then, we just went to school to learn stuff and get degrees. But Father Mike tried to tap in to the, to the uh, radicalism, the small radicalism, the radicalist element that was there. And he would walk around and he had sermons literally entitled, Why College Students Are Going to Hell. He would have sermons that said things like, Have you ever smoked a cigarette? Enjoy hell. And so on. Very extreme. And I would listen to Father Mike. He would walk around in the quad and he would have his Bible never opened, but he would wave it and he would preach and he had this accent that he embodied while he preached that he didn't have while he talked. And I know that because I spoke with Father Mike. And it turns out, Brother Mike, he wasn't there to teach the gospel. What we ended up learning was Brother Mike was there as an opportunity to sue the school. He would say these provocative things, these things that intentionally enraged people, and he would hope that somebody would come up and punch him in the face, or throw a football at him, or assault him somehow. Because if you look past Brother Mike and out into the crowd, there were cameras everywhere. And they were waiting for somebody to do something stupid so they could sue the University of Cincinnati. I legitimately tried to talk to Brother Mike because I was 18 and I knew everything there was to know about the Bible. And I would question him on these principles. And he didn't care. He didn't care about biblical principle. What he cared about was making a little bit of money. I would say things like... I would, I would ask what I thought were intelligent questions and I would say things like, um, where do you pull your teaching that, where do we read from the Bible that going to college automatically gets somebody into hell? What is it about a college student that makes them worthy of eternal condemnation just like that? And he would say, why are you talking to me? He was one of those people. He was one of those people who saw the Bible, who saw the Word of God, who saw Jesus as an opportunity for exploitation with no actual interest in learning what it said. With no actual interest in teaching what it said, with no actual interest in studying, with no actual interest in implementing. 
And we've all met those people before, maybe not in that quite extreme of a situation, but some who say things like, why do you grow your hair long? How does, how does not cutting your hair help me worship God any better? Isn't cutting the split ends off actually making it more beautiful in the service of God? Several of you have heard that question before. Where is it that God says that my church can't be out in the mountains while fly fishing? That one's a tempting one. But it's not scriptural, is it? The same group of critics would ask Jesus, He would say, By what authority do you do these things? They would say, Show us a sign from heaven. Is it lawful to divorce for any reason? Moses says this, but what do you say? Which is the great commandment in the law? And the list could go on of all of these great questions that should have been relevant and should have been life-changing, but were only serving the purpose of mocking the man and trying to catch him in the wrong. And while there's nothing wrong with these questions in and of themselves, the purpose behind each one was not in search of information, but in search of contradiction. Even seeing him perform outright miracles upon seeing him cast out a demon, some even accused Jesus of doing so by the power of demons, which luckily for us transitioned into the wonderful teaching where a house divided against itself cannot stand, and that has significant application to us and may not have been taught without this question, or probably would have been, but they served it up on a platter really nicely without intending to. Matthew 12, verse 22, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he was and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw and all the multitudes were amazed and said could this be the son of David and now when the Pharisees heard it they said this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub the ruler of demons have you ever wondered why Jesus never pulled himself off the cross when they told him to in Mark the 15th chapter verse 32 have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't descend? Have you ever asked that question? Jesus could have saved all of those people if He'd have just come down off the cross. They said they would believe Him. They said that if He just named who smacked Him in the face or who spit on Him, if He just named them, they would believe. Why didn't Jesus just comply? Or why didn't, answer, or why didn't He answer the Pharisees when they asked Him, by what authority do you do these things? Jesus responded and He said, I'll answer a question for you if you answer a question for me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? See, Jesus was more the politician than they realized. And they said they feared the people and they feared this and they feared that. And so they said, we don't, we don't know. We can't answer you. And He said, neither will I answer you. By what authority do you do these things? Now, if it was beneficial to their faith... If it would help them grow as followers of Christ, do you think Jesus would have answered them? Absolutely. So why didn't He? Why didn't He come down off the cross? Why didn't He answer? The question can be answered quite clearly in Luke the 13th chapter. We all know this story where a rich man died and a poor man died. And the rich man ended up in Hades and the poor man ended up in the embrace of Abraham. And the Bible says that he lifted up his eyes and he saw him and he had a chance to communicate it. That should tell you something about hell, by the way, brethren. That should really concern us. You're going to remember. You're going to remember what it was like before. More importantly than that, you're going to remember the opportunities you had not to be there. You're going to remember. Your memory will be intact, evidently. And I believe that's probably a pretty significant torture in and of itself, knowing that this was not necessary. It could have been avoided. Well, this man knew it could have been avoided, and he asked, he asked for a drop of water, and it couldn't happen. So he asked, and he said, Go back and 
Let my family know that this place is real. He said, no, we can't do that either. Why not? If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Luke 13 and verse 31. If they didn't hear these folks, they're not going to hear somebody who's risen from the dead. You know, people don't hear people who have risen from the dead today. Though we don't see them physically, we have their records accounted for. Some people's minds are so set in what they believe that they cannot see the truth as it stands before them. And that's a problem. This prompted Jesus to label some in a very extreme state as unpardonable. And that scares us. That scares us as members of the church of Christ. And we like, to, we like to ignore Matthew, the 12th chapter, verse 31 and 32, because it talks about an unpardonable sin. And we sure don't want to know anything about it, because if we don't know about it, we can't be guilty of it. Spoiler alert, I don't believe you can be guilty of this today anyway. Because the age of miracles have passed, and in order for this to be something that we can be guilty of, we will need to have, ex have witnessed the Son of God in person, perhaps even miracles as well. He says, Therefore I say to you, even in sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, neither in this age or the age to come. Now, if you were like me when you were really young, you hear that and you think, Oh my, oh my word, have I ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Like I said... Probably not, since you weren't there to witness. Secondly, by the very nature of this sort of blasphemy, if you're concerned about your soul, you're not guilty of it. It's not as if people did this and then they came and they said, please forgive me, God, for what I did. And God said, no. What we're talking about here is an individual whose mind is so corrupted and calloused that they can't bring themselves to believe. This is not to say that repentance would not work for them. Rather, they have created for themselves or within themselves a crater of such ignorance that they were beyond willing to believe and therefore stationary in their stubbornly held belief, even though they personally witnessed the miraculous work and teachings of Jesus. Some, interestingly, knew who Jesus was and wanted him dead anyway. If you look at the crucifixion of Christ kind of like a court case, it becomes familiar in a lot of ways. Pilate asks them, he says, What has this guy done to you? And they say things like, If he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him. And how familiar does that sound? That's, that's a perfect one-liner in today's courtrooms, isn't it? If he hadn't been a criminal... Oh, oh, okay, well, guilty. And that's considered logical, I guess, in these days and those days. Jesus demonstrated the distinction between talking with those who wanted to know Him and those who simply had an agenda. Matthew 26, as He's being questioned, the high priest rose and He said, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. It wasn't worth it. You don't cast your pearls before swine, brethren. And this was the same crowd who would eventually mock Him with slaps to the face, daring Him to come off the cross. And for these types of people, there's only one answer to their problem. Get Him out of the way. Matthew 27 and verse 22, What shall I do with Jesus? This is called Christ. And they said to Him, Let Him be crucified. On one hand, you know, it's kind of bittersweet for us as the 21st century church. On one hand, you want to say, thank, thank goodness that they were so close-minded. That Christ died for us and for our sins. That we can live guilt-free. That we can live with a free conscience knowing that there's something greater to come. On one hand, we want to say thank you. On the other hand, you just 
you want to shake your head in embarrassment. Kind of like a parent, not me, because I still have an excuse. He's not even two years old. But you know, you know that there were times when Brian Burns would hear that I said something or did something and he just thought, oh my, oh my word. In fact, there's a big reason for me, there's a big motivation for me to wipe the memories or do damage to the memories of people who knew me as a younger person because it is just that embarrassing. This makes you want to shake your head in shame sometimes. And I wonder about this whenever it comes to these people who saw the living embodiment of God on earth and they said, kill Him. The issue was not knowing who Jesus is. They knew who He was. The issue is what do we do with Him once we know Him? Many today will choose to mock, to crucify, to defame, to ignore instead of believe. So what will you do with Him? The choice is yours. There are a few different options like I said before. And luckily... Mocking is not the only one. On the opposite side of the spectrum, there were some who are willing to get to know Christ but have no foundation upon which to build. There, are hope for these, there is hope for these people. In John the ninth chapter, it's a wonderful little story, not because of the miracle, but because of what followed. Jesus passed by and He saw a man who was blind from birth. And people knew that He was blind from birth. Verse, nine, uh, verse 1, And His disciples said to Him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that He was born blind? That was one of those that they thought was a good question, which wasn't. Rabbi, who sinned that this man was born blind? And He said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he said these things, he spat on the ground, made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. <laughs> and he said, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and watched and he came back seeing. Sometimes Jesus helps people without being asked. How many people stand or sit by the roadside blind thinking, boy, I sure hope somebody will come and spit and make mud and cleanse my eyesight. It doesn't seem that this man even asked Jesus for help. But in this particular case, he got it. And instead of seeing this as the confirmation of God on earth as it was intended, the powers that were chose to make an issue of this situation, interrogating the formerly blind man, his parents, and him once again. This all took place in John the ninth chapter, and it's a wonderful little story because this guy shows sense. He just shows sense. At least twice, three times in fact, the man was asked how this great miracle came about. Once in verse 11, once in verse 15, once in verse 27. It was almost as if we've got an answer that we want you to answer, so give it to us and this will all end. It was kind of like the Inquisition form of questioning, you know, in those good old days of ancient or old Spain where you'd ask questions and they wouldn't give you the right answer, so you spin the rack a little bit more, cut off another toenail or something, and they ask again. What is it that you know? And you still say, I don't know. So they do it a little bit more and so on. We're going to torture them until we get the question or the answer that we want. This particular case, they were torturing him with questions, I suppose. And I like this response. John, the ninth chapter in verse 23, 24. So they said again, they called the man who was blind, and they said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And he responded, this guy could have been a politician too. He says, quote, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's insight. 
I don't know if he was a sinner or not. What I do, let the evidence speak for itself, folks. I was blind once, and now I see. And finally, after an intense back and forth, the man who experienced Jesus personally had this to say. I don't know, but this I do. Earlier in the chapter, when people ask him what happened, he essentially responded by saying, I only did what he told me to do. As if to say, what else do you want me to say? He told me to go wash in the pool, and that's what I did. And even though the foundation of our faith can be put in more complex terms if we want it to, why do you all think baptism is a requirement for salvation? Because God said it was. Since when is that not reason enough to obey Him? It was good enough for Brian and Sharon Burns. Because I said so. And even though God never said that in, in such terms... It makes me wonder why in the world that's no longer an acceptable foundation of authority. Because God told us to. And we can get into more detail a little bit later on as to why we do what we do. But if you don't accept that God is the ultimate power and authority of the universe, of the church, then we have no leg to stand on and we have nothing else to talk about. Earlier in the chapter, people wondered... Later in the chapter, we find that when he didn't give the answer that they wanted him to give, they just, they, they just get rid of the problem. They excommunicated him, didn't they? It is a shame not to approach the child of God in the same way that he did. Because once Jesus found him a little bit later on, he asked a question that we heard. We heard it in the book of Acts too, with a certain Ethiopian eunuch. We heard this question before when Jesus said, do you believe? And he said, who is he that I might believe? And he said, it's me who's talking to you. The guy allowed the power of Christ to work in his life and not necessarily in a miraculous way. Belief isn't miraculous. Belief is common sense. And though he didn't immediately understand it, he knew salvation when he saw it. Now, there's a popular phrase that's coming up today. Remember how I started my list of things I never thought I would have to preach about within the church? This is number two. Have you ever heard that, uh, that phrase? I can't help it that I was born this way. If God doesn't like it tough, He wouldn't have created me this way if, uh, if He didn't want me this way. Let's talk about Luke 19 and a short guy named Zacchaeus. The Bible says, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was chief tax collector, and he was rich. And though he sought to see who Jesus was, he could not because of the crowd, because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. Now, I wonder about Zacchaeus, who was evidently a righteous guy. We see he was a good steward of his wealth. We see that he caught the attention of Jesus because Jesus said, Get down from there, I'm coming over. Not, Jesus doesn't always ask you before He helps you, and Jesus does not always announce Himself before He comes over either. I think that might be where Miles King got it and started thinking that was okay. He just said, I'm coming over, which he did. And we don't see Zacchaeus raising his hand saying, I'm short, I can't see Jesus. After all, he was naturally short. I don't think he had any surgeries. There's a consistent argument made today that one does not come to God or he will not accept them because of their natural state. And they say, I was born this way. And don't forget what Jesus said. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I'm not going to get into the whole debate whenever it comes to homosexuality. I know sometimes we like to debate 
that you're not born that way. Yes, I am born that way. Nowhere, I, I don't, I'm not interested in that debate because regardless of whether or not somebody is born this way or that way, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus said, deny yourself and follow me. Doesn't change, does it? Whether somebody was or wasn't born that way, I'm not making that statement. I'm simply pointing out that it's a useless argument because of the fact that whether it's true or not, we are told to deny ourselves. We are told to cast off the old man with his deeds and be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Put on the new man, which has not grown corrupt according to deceitful lusts. You're expected to change regardless of whatever natural state you are or are not born with, whether it's a proclivity for this sin or whether it's a proclivity for that sin or whether it's harder for you over here or harder for you over there, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus said, I'm coming over. Remember that in order to compensate for a natural short stature, Zacchaeus climbed a tree. It really boils down to how badly you want to see the Lord. So how badly do you want to be a part of Him? Some approach God's Word and God's will as if it's some big mystery that nobody is privy to, so we can't believe. We can't understand because it's a secret. Some claim that it's impossible to understand and they excuse themselves from its laws on this faulty premise and very few people are willing to simply ask. The disciples were remarkable people in a lot of different ways and one of the things that made them remarkable this is going to sound strange. One of the things that made them remarkable is that they were normal. They were, nor they were normal people. Sometimes I wonder how I would get along with them. I was talking to Don Kuhn about when the, his days in solo in that group, that musical group that every little kid wanted to be a part of in the old Texas days, 1980s, or late 1980s, early 90s, and so on. And they had this song. I don't remember if it was when he was singing with them or not. And there's a phrase in this song that goes, uh, Lord, I wish I'd have lived to know you when you walk down here in the shell of a man. I'd have been a friend to lend a helping hand. And I think that's a wonderful sentiment. And it's something we should all think, that we would have been a friend of God. I think, though, I would have been a friend of the disciples. I'd have been like, you, we going fishing? I'm going fishing. Or when Peter decides to use his gigantic personality and speak, when he's not spoken to, I'd say, I, I can relate to that. Leave Peter alone, I understand. That's our natural state, after all. They ask insightful questions every once in a while. And in this case, it was Thomas. Whenever Jesus in John 14 was talking about where He's going and how He's taught them, but they haven't understood it yet. And, and Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where You are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the light. No one comes to the Father except through Me. You know, it was not for the disciples to understand everything at this time. And Jesus made a promise in John 14 that that day would come and that things would be clarified. And as Thomas sought to understand the Lord, he simply asked. And though the disciples were with Jesus, we have a much clearer picture of the way to Jesus, or the way uh, to which Jesus is referring. He said, I am the way. And in another conversation, Jesus clarified even further. He said in Matthew 16, and this is when the hero Peter comes in, and I call him a hero because he's somebody that we can all relate to. You ever had that tendency to speak before you think? Peter had that. And Jesus says, but sometimes it paid off. There's hope for you if that's you, because sometimes it pays off. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, others one of the prophets. Have you ever heard somebody say, Jesus was a good man? 
He's not the Son of God, but He's a good man. Have you ever heard somebody say, Cornelius was a good man, he was a Gentile, and he wasn't obedient, but he was a good man. Have you ever heard somebody say, so-and-so, they're a good man, they're not, they're, they haven't obeyed the gospel, but, but they're good. And how many of us are counting on the fact that we're good people? And we name off all the things that we're supposed to do anyway. We pay our taxes, we don't kill people, we don't road rage, we pay our taxes, as if that's some huge thing that we need credit for. We don't do this and we don't do that. And we may very well be good people by a certain standard. And people looked at Jesus and they saw that He might be a good guy. He might be John the Baptist. He might be Elijah. But here He placed a distinction between those people who don't know Him and those people that do. Because He said, alright then, those people say that I... Who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up. He said, you're Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but that my Father in heaven, and upon this rock I will build my church. Not Peter Petros' rock, but the rock of the confession, the rock of the fact that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, and it's upon this foundation that the church is built. Jesus was the Messiah, is the Messiah. And John 4 finds Jesus on His way to Galilee, still as the Messiah, and He passes through an area called Samaria, which is a treacherous little spot for a guy who's a Jew. Understandably tired from the journey, He sits down at a well and He sends His disciples on into Samaria to buy food. And He stops by Jacob's well, and at a time when most people are not out fetching water to rest, you know, the Bible does not tell us everything, and it doesn't tell us whether this was by design or whether this woman just got lucky. But I can't help but think that there's some sort of providence involved because as Jesus said here, this woman who comes out when nobody comes out to get water, does so. As opportunity would have it, he runs across this woman whose understanding of God and salvation is slightly skewed. Her life choices also reflect one who is not fully convicted in her love for God. And Jesus tells her things. For example, John 4, verse 13, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst again. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a foundation of water springing up unto everlasting life. And understandably, she says, let me drink some of it. And that's okay, brethren, that's okay. When people seeking Jesus or hearing teachings of Jesus, when people don't completely understand right away, some of our tendencies are to flip the table and say, I'm done, and get in the truck and drive off, leaving in a cloud of dust whenever it comes to people who just don't get it. But sometimes it's okay not to get it because she didn't leave, did she? And Jesus continued to take advantage of this opportunity. And as she spoke with Jesus, she began to realize that this was no ordinary preacher. This was no ordinary Jew, for that matter. Between his prophecies and his knowledge of his personal life, it became increasingly difficult to ignore this man as someone great. And so the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. In verse 26, Jesus says, I who speak to you am He. Going back to the old Solo days, that's, that is something I would have liked to have been there for. To personally hear Jesus say something like that, I who you speak, to whom you speak, am He. What's it like to witness the Messiah personally? To look Him in the eye and hear His teachings audibly. That's not required for salvation, but boy, it would have been something. 
The information isn't secret. And once His people learn this, it then falls to them as to what to do with the information. She went back into town and she told folks about it. And to these, Samar uh, to these Samaritans' credit, they didn't believe the woman, not that she was particularly untrustworthy, not saying anything about her personally, simply pointing out that they heard what she said, it prompted them to action, and they went out to see this guy. And they said, quote, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard Him, and we know that this is indeed Christ, the Savior of the world. And that's a big statement for a Samaritan. Do some research on that divide between Jews and Samaritans of the day. Follow the history back and see what started it, and see what maintained that chasm between them. And you'll understand the profound impact that such a statement from a Samaritan has when they say, we know that you are Christ, Savior of the world. So what do you do with that information? Well, let's talk about Paul real quick. In 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, verses 1-4, through 4, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures." and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus was quite open regarding who He was, what His mission was, and what He intended to accomplish. Now granted, there was a time or two where He had to tell His disciples, don't tell anybody what you saw here today, but the time had not yet been revealed. That's the problem there. It has been revealed now. And yet even when the face of such plain teaching of both the Son of God and the Apostles, many are still on the fence about what to do next when it comes to the knowledge of Him. I turned 35 in July. Ugh. Older than I've ever been. Never thought I would be 35. Partially because I know my lifestyle. Partially because it was just... I've been young for so long. I know it's all a matter of perspective too. I know some of you are thinking 35. Oh, you poor, you poor guy. I know that. I mention that to point out, I don't think it's unusual, especially for younger people, younger guys with aspirations of leadership, especially when you think someday, someday I'll study the Bible as I should study it. Someday I'll get to know the Word of God. Someday I'll learn how to put Scriptures with the plan of salvation. Someday I'll understand the workings of the, inner, of the Holy Spirit today. Someday I'll understand congregational structure and autonomy and the leadership hierarchy. And someday I'll understand these things. And as older brethren in the audience will tell you, someday gets here like that. My son's already a year and a half old. I can't believe it. I remember, I remember the day thinking, <laughs> this was a mistake. I remember that day like it was yesterday. I know, I shouldn't admit that. But you can admit it too in the privacy of your mind. I remember that moment thinking, maybe, maybe we rushed this just a little bit. Now he's a year and a half old and he won't stop. Now, like I said, age is all a matter of perspective. I understand that to some I'm relatively young. I understand that to some, though, maybe it will make an impact that I, when I say that someday is, is here. Someday is here. And it's time to understand Jesus for who He was. It's time to do something with that knowledge. It's time to get it done now. 
You know, I mentioned that maybe I could be friends with the disciples. I think I could, the sons of thunder, Peter. Because after they witnessed His crucifixion, they even witnessed Him coming back once too. And Peter says, according to John 21, I'm going fishing, which I can understand. Every once in a while, even though they had seen Him once already, their futures were still uncertain, and complete clarity had not yet come to them. And sometimes it takes a little clearing of the head to know what to do next. Here's the thing about that particular clearing of the head session. Jesus was there waiting for them. As they're out there fishing, they see some guy, and there's nothing that hunters and fishermen dislike more than you're out there doing your thing and some guy walks up and you're like, hey, you, you ought to use a rooster tail instead of a worm. Look at the color of that water. What are, you, what are you dumb? Who starts trying to correct you and what you're doing. And they look out and they see this guy on the street. He's not even in a boat and he's like, cast the net on the, on the other side and see what happens. So they do. The load is so great they can hardly haul it in. And even though they had a boat, they see Jesus over there. They realize who it is. He's got breakfast waiting for him on the beach. And even though he had a boat, Simon, he puts on an extra layer. Isn't that weird? What do we do whenever we go swimming? We start taking things off. How, how much can I take off before I'm considered naked? Peter here, he, he sees Jesus on the shoreline and he puts on his extra coat and he gets in and he swims to Him. How bad do you want to get to Christ? What do you want to do with that information? How bad do you want to see Him? How bad do you want to obey Him? He puts on this cloak, he jumps in the water, and he beats the boat there. How anxious are you to see the Lord? Will you be the last to leave Him, the first to minister to Him, leave the safety of the boat to go to Him? There's indicators, although it doesn't outright say it, the Bible makes a very clear point that the women stayed with Him at His crucifixion. And it makes it even clearer that the women were the first to the tomb too. Not only that, but as the women were the first to see Him, people didn't believe Him either. They said, we have seen Jesus, and they weren't sure about that. By all indications, according to Matthew 27, verse 55, many women who followed Christ from Galilee ministered to Him were there looking on from afar. And the first three Gospels seem to indicate that several of Jesus, the women in Jesus' life were the last at His cross and the first ones to the tomb. I believe there's something to be said for the last to leave and the first to arrive whenever it comes to the Lord. And in our world of bare minimum effort, seeking to gain the most by giving the least, we should carefully consider what to do next when we learn who and what Jesus is. On the road to Emmaus, perhaps one of the most touching stories in the history of the life of Christ. Jesus talked with men who had known Him, but they didn't know Him then. Something was different. And as these men walked along the road, their lives had been upended because of His death and were no doubt discouraged, concerned about the future. They knew the tomb was empty, but there were still a lot of questions. And all of a sudden, this guy, the same guy, by the way, who gives fishing advice to fishermen from the shore, and he talked to him. He acted like he hadn't known what was going on. And they said, haven't you been in Jerusalem the last few days? They killed Jesus. Don't you know? The Bible says that... In Luke 24, the Bible says that as he spoke, their hearts burned within them. And in Luke the 24th chapter, and verse 29, they said, abide with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is, is far spent. It was at this time Jesus went into them and they prepared a meal and so on, and, and then He disappeared. And the Bible says that after He was gone, 
they realized who had been with them. After all, didn't our hearts burn within us as He spoke to us? And after He disappeared, they had just got home. They left that very hour and went to find the eleven with whom they shared what they had experienced. Those who sincerely want Christ in their lives will get Christ in their lives. No one is denied when they are truly willing to let Him in. So the question falls to us, what will you do with Jesus once, or what will you do with Jesus, whom we call Christ? Once you know Him, who He is, what He is, ask Him to stay. Ask Him to stay and He will. Luke 11, verse 9 through 10. I, so I will say to you, whoever asks, it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. So what will you do with this man called Jesus? Will you obey Him? You ought to. You ought to. There's very little option. In the, look around at what the world has to offer. The pickings are slim. And we're running out of reasons not to obey Christ. Frankly, we talked yesterday briefly about that statement, the world is in worse shape than it's ever been. Well, okay, if that's true, isn't now the perfect time to obey Him? Get it in gear and do what it is the Bible teaches us to do. Obey the Lord. Trust in Him with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. So get it done. Obey the Gospel if you haven't, if you're accountable. Repent and return to Him if you've left. The congregation will assist you in whatever scriptural way they can. But it falls to you to decide, I will or I will not. So I suggest you do. Take this opportunity to make it. Please come while we stand and sing.